morning. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's open our Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. As we go verse by verse in this text, tonight we come to chapter 5. Josh and Jonathan as they start school. I guess Jonathan, both of them just starting? John, Jonathan, Josh is starting. Jonathan's been going about They've been, Okay. And appreciate you praying for them. And um, thank you for praying for Garrett. Uh, he's been going for three weeks and uh, we have heard from him and he is alive. I'd say well, but uh, that's questionable. Um, anyway, let's jump in. Let's, let's pray first as we open the word. Father, thank you again. Thank you for the precious people that are here tonight, that I get to preach to someone. And uh, Father, thank you for your word. It is so wonderful to us. Pray for those that are watching online uh, of our fellowship and maybe others. Just pray you'd use the scriptures. uh, Give a respect for your word. Uh, Lord, we know that it is through the scriptures that you've communicated your truth. They reveal you. And as we see how you dealt with your people, Judah, Israel, the Jews, uh, we learn uh, your ways, and uh, we pray that you would bless us tonight. Thank you, Father, for the work that you do through your own chosen people that, to make them, to conform them to your image, to set them apart, to be unique and a, a, an example and a light to the world. And as you were trying to do that with Judah, you're doing that with us. We thank you for that. We ask your blessing on the word now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we are now, in, again, we're in Jeremiah chapter 5, and the section we're going to look at today really is continuing some of the themes that we brought out uh, in the past, and in the, our verses tonight are verses 1 through 9. There are, it's believed there are two speakers uh, going back and forth. In verses 1 and 2, God speaks. Then in verses 3 through 6, some believe it is Jeremiah speaking, and then verses 7 through 9 goes back to God speaking. And uh, we really pick up with the theme, uh, can this people be forgiven? And that, as you might remember, was what the theme was in chapter 3. It's been the theme throughout this. But in chapter 3 and verse 1, that began, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall she return unto her again? Uh, Shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou, referring to Judah, thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. And that whole chapter there, and then we pick up with that idea, is is the idea that can this husband, God, take back this unfaithful wife, the Jews, Israel, in this case Judah, after she had been unfaithful. And as we've already seen in chapter 3 and in the past, uh, God was willing to do that. And so now we we pick up with that, and I want to read one comment that I've kind of brought out already in this, but just to keep in mind, because I've mentioned that the book of Jeremiah is not laid out chronologically. Uh, Jeremiah's ministry was was at least 20 years uh, before they went into Babylonian captivity, Um, but we're not exactly sure, you know, which king's reign Jeremiah, depending on what chapter. And one, uh, one commentator made this, about, this comment about chapter 5. He said, The bulk of chapter 5 
can be read against the background of the story in Jeremiah 36. I'll mention what that is in a minute because we went to this chapter in our Bible study not too long ago. But he said the bulk of chapter 5 can be read against the background of the story in, in Jeremiah 36. But once more, it will be a reformulation by Jeremiah of messages given over the previous 20 years. So one cannot try to relate it to particular times within that period. But it does focus on action that God will do. So when we read through this, um, you know what we're doing is we're saying we're not exactly sure what time period. Was this under King Josiah? Was this under King Jehoiakim? We're not sure exactly. We know that there were some great reforms going on under Josiah. And then those reforms tended to be very uh, superficial. So we're not exactly sure. We, it's believed that Jeremiah... Uh, later in his life, began to collect you know, all these messages and these oracles and begin to form them in a book. So it is not laid out chronologically, and it's important that you keep that in mind. So if the backdrop is Jeremiah 36, I want to remind you real quickly, you don't need to turn there, but in our Bible study we were talking about hermeneutics, we are talking about how God has not preserved His Word. We gave a couple examples, the priest and the potion, which was kind of a myth, that is written in the Apocrypha, or in the, um, yeah, in the middle books that, the Apocrypha. 4th uh, Ezra, the book of 4th Ezra has a story where the entire Old Testament was lost, and God gave uh, Ezra a special potion to drink, and then as he drank that potion, he was able to just rewrite the entire Old Testament, and, and that many of the Jews believe that. We also saw the, uh, the origin of the Greek Old Testament, um, often referred to as the LXX, called the Septuagint because of this fable of how there were supposedly 70 translators that uh, King Ptolemy of Egypt, Egypt, I guess, um, assigned 70 different translators to go and translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And this is just the fable. How, you know, they all did it separately. Nobody consulted one another. And then they all came back and then they said, "Let's." We, they collaborated and said, "Would you have?" And it came out exactly all seventy. You know, it, it's it did not happen that way. That's not how God has preserved His Word. He has preserved His Word, and there is a Greek, uh, you know, a Greek when when the in the New Testament, you know, they were clearly preaching from the Greek version. You all you got to do is go back to your Old Testament. We'll do that eventually. But anyway, there is one example how God preserves His Word after manuscripts have been destroyed. And it was in Jeremiah chapter 36. So let me just read a portion of this. This is kind of a just a prelude, but there's an interesting statement in there. And you might remember, I won't go into all of it and the full story, but listen to this. Jeremiah 36, 1. It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. And then verse 3 says this, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. This is amazing. God is telling Jeremiah, write these things down about what I am planning on doing to, to Judah, to, Jer- or to Judah, Jeremiah, slow down, 
Jerusalem or Israel and Judah. I want you to write it down, what I intend to do. And then verse 3 is amazing. It may be, when you realize who's saying this, you have to step back and look at it. God is saying, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil that I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way. I look at that and say, wait a minute. And other people might say, wait, isn't God sovereign? Isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he already know what they're going to do? And the answer is yes. But again, this is so amazing. This was Jeremiah's life. Decades he he invested in these people that just like Ezekiel, God wasn't concerned about so much when it came to the ministry whether or not Ezekiel and Jeremiah would be successful. He just wanted them to be faithful in relaying the information. And so when he presented it to Jeremiah, when he presented it to Ezekiel, he's saying, you know, maybe maybe they'll change. And just shows you the, the long-suffering of God. Our God is so faithful. Now, he already knows the end from the beginning. But here he is. It may be. You know, there's so many scriptures where, where perchance or per, perhaps those words are used, and yet God knows it all, and yet his offers are still 100% legitimate. And so the story goes, Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which were spoken, and then the king set one of his officers uh, to fetch the scroll, and then they read it in the king's presence. And the king, instead of trembling, in fact, it says at the end, yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. In other words, they should have been trembling in their boots when they heard this, these judgments. But you know what the king did? He took each scroll, cut it with his penknife, and threw it in the fire. Now, of course, Then God told Jeremiah, I want you to rewrite it. So this was an example where manuscripts were lost and God still preserved his word. But that's what we're focusing on Sunday morning. Uh, But this, as this commentary, this might very well be the backdrop here of chapter 5 that God is once again pleading, I'm giving you a chance to repent. So let's jump in. I'm going to give you the next few minutes that we look. Three things we're going to look at. Verses 1 through 2 is the invitation. And then verses 3 through 6, the invitation expanded. And then verses 7 through 9, the probing question. Remember, it's all going back to, should God forgive his people? Will God forgive his people? And, and here's the point today. God is just, and God will do right. And it's almost like he's anticipating now. You remember, we've already looked in the last few weeks that God said, Somewhere along this journey, again, not chronological, somewhere along this journey, God said, okay, it's done. And pretty soon he's going to start to name the people he's raising up to bring the judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, uh, and so in that sense, it's a done deal. And now God's saying, okay, if I were to judge my people, would, would I be doing the right thing? Would I, would that be right of me if I really chastised if I, if I brought judgment down and chastened the people of Judah, all these judgments that I'm saying, would that be right? And it's interesting because it reminds me of Romans 9.20. Remember Romans 9.20? 
Paul said, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You know, God is, is sovereign. He can do what he wants, which is amazing because he's still giving this beautiful invitation because he wants people to realize my judgment is right. My judgment is sound. And so he's laying it out. So look at verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 1, the invitation. He says, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh truth, and I will pardon it. He says, I'll pardon the whole country. If you can just find one man that's seeking truth, that's seeking to do right, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. This is amazing to me. You know what he's doing? He's telling the Jews because he has already done that himself. I love 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. I love this verse. And according to Job, I just believe this is something that's going on constantly. Second uh, Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward, toward me, is how that's worded, toward him. So you know what God's doing? And I believe he's doing it now. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro. God is constantly looking. What's he looking? He's looking not just, he's not looking at how people perform. He's looking at hearts to and fro to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. God is constantly looking for people that he can bless. It's an amazing thing. And now, in the same terminology, he tells Judah, he says, You run to and fro. You do what I've been doing. And you tell me, you, you see if you can find one man. And if there's one man, one person that seeks, that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, just one. Now, by the way, this is reminiscent to time back in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham began to petition for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? He went to prayer, and uh, in, in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 23, it says, Abraham drew near to God and he said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Because God let them know. I'm getting ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Just exactly what he's telling Judah, I'm going to be doing for you. And so Abraham gets into prayer mode. And he says, peradventure, there be 50 righteous within the city. You know, per ch- it, it, this is so interesting because it just shows you, you've got finite man, that's us. We don't know what's going on. We're not sovereign. We're not omniscient. We can't see everything. And so for us, we're superb adventure. From God, he knows everything, doesn't he? It's already laid out. And so Abraham says, Peradventure there be found 50 righteous. Will you not spare the city for their sake? This is amazing. And God says, okay, I, I, will, I will do it for that. And then he says, okay, thank you. How about 45? And God says, okay, this is my paraphrase. He'll say, okay, I'll do it for 45. All right, he says, um, how about 40? God says, and, and he starts getting more, like, 
you know, more and more hesitant as he's asking, you know, you know, um, realizing that he's treading lightly. And he keeps asking from, from first 50, then 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, finally 10, you know. And he even says in that, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And he gets God to say, if you could just find 10 people, I will not destroy it. And then he left. Now here, God's given an invitation He's not asking for 10. He's just asking for one. You just find one person. And I guess Jeremiah doesn't qualify here, uh, but he's just looking for one person who's seeking the right thing, that's seeking for the Lord, and he will not judge it. It's amazing. It's just so amazing. I want to read to you, and don't want you to turn there for time's sake, but I want to read to you because Ezekiel... Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were all what we call contemporaries. Although Jeremiah's ministry was a little earlier, because Jeremiah started preaching to Judah, they all lived around the same time, but the ministry of Ezekiel and Daniel came later. They began preaching in their ministry when they got carried away into Babylon. Jeremiah began his ministry, you know, 20 or some years before, trying to get Judah to repent. So they wouldn't go to Babylon. But it's interesting because the message, a lot of the messages overlap. And God is really keyed in on the fact that these people entered a covenant with him. They were in a covenant relationship. God had higher expectations with the Jews who were his covenant people than Assyria, than Babylon, than any of these other people. And so listen to what God told the Jews Later on, through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 17 and verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem, and hath taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon, and and hath taken of the king's seed, and made a covenant with him, and hath taken an oath of him, he hath also taken the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt. This is all getting on down. We're going to be reading this in Jeremiah. I told you last week, I think, that there's going to come a time when God's saying, okay, it's done deal now. I want you to submit yourself to Babylon you're going to go over into Babylon in captivity, and I want you to be peaceful and just submit to them because that's my will. This is your chastisement. And they, before that happened, they said, nope, we're going to try to escape your judgment by looking to Egypt to be our saviors. That's where Egypt comes in. Verse 15, they rebelled against me, and they sent ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape to do such things? Or shall he break the covenant? He keeps mentioning this, the covenant. And be delivered. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth, that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he brake, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons, seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. And he goes on just... God is very, very, when, when you make a covenant, when you're in a covenant relationship with God, you, you, you are set apart. 
Remember the word saint? We are set apart for God. It, it's a whole different picture, folks. And we're going to see at the very end that what God is doing with us, His covenant people, is not just trying to have a relationship with us, but it is we are to be representatives of His to a lost and dying world. And the influence of Yahweh to the people of Israel, and then later the influence of Jesus Christ in Christianity has definitely made an impact and made a difference. You look and you do a study of history and you see where Christianity has had influence and it's made a world of difference. And that's, what God, that's why God wanted the Jews to be different than the Canaanites. He wanted them to stand out. He wanted them to, to be a picture of their covenant with Him. And here they are, muddying it up by like adopting the worship of God with the worship of their pagan deities. And just imagine the mixed message and how unclear it was to all those Canaanites and those, those evil people that didn't have a good witness. God was burdened about that. It's interesting. Uh, I've read this story several times and there's a couple versions of it, but it seems to be true. And, and because it's, it's about, you ever hear the um, the comedian W.C. Fields? His friends called him Billy. He was a comedian. He was he was not a, a, a religious person. Apparently he was a pretty wild drinker, womanizer, that kind of a thing. And he was nearing the time of his death. And, and again, this may have happened because a couple of his different friends related this. And it may he may have done this simply as a comedic joke, which would be sad. But towards the end of his life, a friend for example, one of his friends went into the room where he was, and very unlike W.C. Fields, he had a Bible open, and he was paging through the Bible. And, and it really surprised his friend, because he knew, you're not religious, he said, what are you doing reading a Bible? And uh, W.C. Fields quipped, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. You know, he's looking for loopholes. And, and probably because if he did say that several times, he's probably making a joke. You know, maybe he felt uncomfortable. You know, when I think of that, I think, man, I hope that guy really was like reading the Bible, not trying to find loopholes, but because he was nearing death, maybe he was starting to get serious about the Lord. I can hope that's the case. There are no loopholes. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ. And I hope, of course, that he came to that. But, you know, it's interesting because it seems like the nature of man is we want to do what we want to do. And, uh, you know, we don't want to get punished for it. And so maybe Judah was looking for loopholes. You know, they very well may have. So God tells them, just, just as the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, so God is inviting them to um, run to and fro, just, just, you know, look everywhere. And then in verse 2, Jeremiah 5, 2, And though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. In other words, if you find someone in this search, if you find someone that is, is, is the idea of the Lord liveth, is he's, he's claiming that he's trusting in the Lord, because God runs to and fro and look, looks for hearts, he knows that person's a fraud. Because these people are not genuinely looking for me. So now we go to the verse 3 and 5, 3 through 6. The invitation is expanded. And this it is believed now Jeremiah is speaking. The first two verses... We're God, Yahweh. Now Jeremiah, verse 3, O Lord, 
Are not thine eyes upon the truth? Remember the eyes of the Lord running to and fro? Are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them. In other words, he's chastened his people. But they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them. But they have refused to receive correction. Remember, when God is dealing with his people, it's not punishment in the idea of condemnation. It is correction. And to his people, the Jews, Judah, he is trying to correct them. But they will not receive the correction. They refuse to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Remember that key word to turn or return? That's, it's predominant here. They would not return. They would not repent. Verse 4. Therefore I said, surely these are poor, not economically, but in knowledge and in morality. These are poor. They are foolish. For they know not the way of the Lord, for the judgment, uh, nor the judgment of their God. And this is the judgment is speaking about a legal judgment, because God is getting ready to punish them and to, to bring justice. Verse five: I will get me unto the great men. In other words, he looked. He you know he, he looked for the common man. He was looking for people. Couldn't find any. He says, okay, I'm going to get me unto the great men. We're going to go to the elders and the the people that are in charge, the leaders. And will speak unto them. For they have known the way of the Lord. The older people have experience with, with Yahweh and, and what he's done. And the judgment, again, the, the legal judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. He's letting them know. I want you, you go try and find someone. Just You go ahead and try and find someone that is genuinely seeking after me. And I will not judge my people. But of course, God already knew. They didn't exist. And now he's saying in verse 6, Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evenings shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. These predators uh, are all symbolic, and, and it is a picture, an analogy, of the different nations that God is going to use to bring judgment. Um, for example, the lion would be Babylon, the wolf would be Persia, the leopard would be Greece. You know, the, these things would be fulfilled. Uh, and these are just imageries, these predators. They're going to come and devour his people, and God is letting them, letting them know. Now, it's interesting that God will test his people. Let's find this in the New Testament, too. God will, in fact, sometimes the word in the New Testament, sometimes the word, even in the Old Testament, tempt is used. Remember the Bible says in Genesis, and God did tempt Abraham. Now, you, we have to keep that in context, and you have to understand the word tempt. Remember, Dr. Griffith preached on this, I think when he was here, many years ago, about the idea of tempt. Isn't in, remember James, send, said, James says, let no man say I am, that I am tempted, that, that God tempts me, because God cannot tempt men with evil. And the idea of that, then, because it says, it, God did tempt Abraham. And I think Charlie brought this out, too, when he's going through Genesis. You went through Genesis? You went through the whole book of Genesis. Yeah, but I remember that now, and it's like, wow. How, do you remember how long that took? Yeah, it was a long time. But I do remember you dealt with this too, and I think you brought out the same thing, that the idea is to test. And that's what God does. He's not testing us in that he's like, hey, I'm going to trick you to sin against me. He is, in fact, the picture that's used is often the picture of a furnace uh, purifying gold. 
and I think Dr. Griffith brought this up too, and this is what I'm picturing is that you talked about how the idea of God tempting Abraham was to reveal what was already there. To, to, it exposes the impurities and so forth. God is never you know, tempting us with evil to try to see if we'll trip up. God is simply testing to see our faith. And we have to keep that in mind. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9 says, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Here's some other verses. Psalm 66. Thou hast proved us. That's another word, prove. To test and find out. Thou hast proved us, O God. Thou hast tried us like as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the snare. Thou laidest trouble upon our loins. We went through the fire and water, and thou brought us out into a wealthy place. And then, Isaiah 48.10, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. And then, Paul and Barnabas, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, reminded the church that through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God. And so the testing was simply to show what was there. And unfortunately, when Judah got tested, they didn't pass. I mean, it, it just it, it revealed that there, there were no people seeking the Lord. Very sad. I read sometime back about an NBA player. Uh, he, he, I think he's a year younger than me. He was born in 63. His name was A.C. Green. He was a junior. His dad was A.C. Green, and A and C were named after his dad's parents, A after the mom, C after the, the dad. And uh, he was, uh, they called him Iron Man because he holds the, the record for the most consecutive season games played in the NBA, 1,192. And he became a Christian uh, through uh, FCA as a Christian group of athletes and he made a profession of faith, and he resolved that he was going to keep his purity. And here's what he said. Here's a quote when he was interviewed. He says, We all have the power of choice, but once used, our choice then has power over us. They say, this was when the government was uh, beginning to promote their, um, their birth control crusade and, and their feeble attempts. And he said, they say, he mentioned the promotion, what they thought would p- keep people from having unwanted pregnancies and um, disease. He said that is the answer for unwanted pregnancy and disease prevention. And it it was not abstinence. He said no one tells the kids that this supposed answer has a fail rate of 15 to 36%. He said teen pregnancies have increased 87% since the government began its birth control crusade. He said we will never stop the AIDS epidemic until we stop promiscuity. And then he made this comment. He said, Magic Johnson was diagnosed with HIV in 1991, and most of the team immediately went for testing. And he said, I didn't. He didn't need to. You know? When you follow purity and you know, you don't need to be tested. You know? Imagine all the guys, when they heard that, that were living immoral lives, got scared. That's when they're like, oh, we've got to go for testing. And I love this guy. You see, Green, he just i got a clear conscience. I don't need to go. You know, that's where God wants us to be. God wants us to be in a place of holiness and morality. So verse 7, 
Now we find the, the, the probing question. Chapter 5, verse 7, How shall I pardon thee for this? So he, he's just laying it out. He doesn't need to lay it out. But he's saying, you, you know, I am judging rightly. He says, How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, and then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. Now we have mentioned, and, and this is t- true tonight, up, some of this, some of the times he uses this idea of an unfaithful wife and sexual immorality to relate to their pagan idolatry, but clearly uh, there was also a, a great amount of sexual immorality involved in this, part of their wickedness, part of the fact that they were walking away from God was that they were immoral. You know, people that don't walk with the Lord do not have a desire to be holy. Look at verse 8. They were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. This is, this is clearly a very clear picture of the immorality that was going on. And, and Ezekiel has some also very clear messages that these people were very uh, immoral, very sexually uh, active and unfaithful, uh, just very wicked. Verse 9, Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? It's like God is saying, what else can I do? See, God's judgments are sound. And he's even inviting Israel, no matter what time this was. And some believe he may have even, this part may have been brought up in some parts during, after they went into captivity, because probably a lot of the Jews were starting to say, you know, condemn God. How could God, how could God judge us? How could he abandon us? And part of this could be, hey, I had no choice. You forsook me. You know, it's amazing. Um, I read a statement, let me see if I can find this somewhere, about leadership. This just, this just came across, I forget where I was studying this, but it was in my study of Jeremiah. And the writer said this, Ethics are intrinsic to leadership. An ethical failure on the part of leaders means disaster. Wow. And, and we see that. The kings of Israel were wicked and God judged them. Ethics in is ethics are intrinsic to leadership. An ethical failure on the part of leaders means disaster. So let's let's look at this contrast. Let's go back in America in 1993. Our president then had uh, named a new AIDS czar because AIDS was a big problem, and this was the first time. Uh, where he named a lesbian to be the AIDS czar. Her name was Christine Gebby. She was the new AIDS czar. And four months later, on the lawn of the White House, she spelled out her perceptions on traditional morality. She said, The United States needs to view human sexuality as an essentially important and pleasurable thing. Until it does so, We will continue to be a repressed Victorian society that misrepresents information, denies homosexual sexuality, particularly in teens, and leaves people abandoned with no place to go. 
And then she said this, I can help just a little bit in my job, standing on the White House lawn, talking about sex with no lightning bolts falling on my head. Wow. I hear that. This was in 1993. And and do you see that defiance? Mm -hmm. And you, you can hear people say, and guess what? No lightning bolt came from heaven and killed her. Wow, if that's not clenching your fist at God. That reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, because God didn't zap her right then and there, therefore the hearts of the children of men is fully set in them to do evil. And I can only imagine that Judah, as Jeremiah is preaching hellfire, judgment, you know, punishment, chastisement, I can imagine them saying, Nothing's happened yet. Jeremiah, you've been preaching this for years now. Nothing's happened. We're fine. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Now, let's go back, talking about leadership in America, in America, because things have changed. Let's go back over 200 years before that. In a state legislature in um, Connecticut, May 19, 1780, Hartford, Connecticut, the sky on that day went from blue to gray to, to black at noon. The, the, dark, the sky was so dark that men believed it was going to be the end of the world. And all over, this was in all New England and in Canada. And you know what they believed caused it? It was wildfires, fog, and, and a heavy cloud cover that just, and that had never happened in their lifetime. That just, that just went black. And on the, on the legislature of the, of the Connecticut House of Representatives, uh, they were, people were feeling like God is going to judge us. This is the judgment of God. They really believed it. And they were getting ready. Somebody suggested that they adjourn the meeting immediately because this is the wrath of God. And the Speaker of the House, Colonel Abraham Davenport, Davenport rose to his feet. He silenced the men with these words. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. I mean, at least he believed it it could be the day of judgment. He said, if it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. So candles were brought, deliberation continued, and amendment they were working on passed. But isn't that interesting? He's saying, if if, if it's the end of the world and judgment comes... I want to be found doing my business, doing being faithful, as opposed to clenching their fists saying, you know, we have our own morality and, and you know, God's not going to strike me dead right here. And he didn't. Has America changed? Absolutely. I want to close with this. This is amazing. This is an incredible um, study. There, I remember a while back, um, I, I put a summary of a book that was written by a lady on how Christianity historically has has made a positive impact on cultures. Because you know how a lot of people say, oh, it's Christianity that's anti-women and all that. And uh, this lady wrote a book, and I believe she was a Christian woman, that really documented how, actually, no, the influence of Christianity has made men more civil. And by that I would say also Judaism, because it's the same God, well, here, this is, there's a young man. He's actually younger than me. He's a world-known historian. He grew up loving ancient history. 
He ate, drank, and slept ancient history. And he studied it. He's an expert in ancient history. And let me read to you what he said. And then I want to reveal something to you about him. His name is Tom Holland. And he said this. He, um, studying the ancient world, he said simply, the ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign to me, he said. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. And so he said, how did we get from here, there to here? His answer, Christianity. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confines sexuality within monogamy. And then he pointed out, it's ironic that those are the very standards now for which Christianity is being criticized. He said, in short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. Tom Holland is an atheist. And that was his summary. He studied history and he could not believe the the vicious, violent, some of these cultures. And he knew that he, he didn't live in that kind of culture. What made the difference? God. Christianity, and and when we look at this context, you see, folks, the reason that God was seeking to set apart Judah, the reason that God was so concerned about their relationship with them is because he was trying to transform his people. He's trying to make them a light to the world because pagan people, pagan nations are, are vicious. People that live for their own pleasure, they need the work of God in their lives. And so here Israel had blown it. And they started mingling and being just like the world. And God said, I've got to do justice, especially on you. You're my people. So what can we take away from that in our lives? First of all, understand that God is sovereign and that God is working everything according to his purpose and his plan in your life. Now, if you're a child of God, that's very comforting. It's comforting in that God is is working in your life, but he's got a plan. He's trying to mold you to be like Jesus Christ. He's trying to make you so that you will be the light of the world. So his expectations for you and I are higher than the world. Because how are we going to let our light shine so people can see our good works if we don't have good works, if we're living just like the world? But folks, everything that God does, no matter what He's doing in our lives, we can rest confident is that His judgment is sound. It's sound. He does right. And so whatever God does, whatever He does with America, it will be right. He's he's a just God. You and I that know God realize that America is not going to get away with it forever. But praise God, when it's all said and done, just like Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we will say, he does. Let's pray.